Hi, and welcome to The Rock's podcast. We are currently going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. We pray that these sermons encourage your faith. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we continue studying the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Heavenly Father, as we consider Christ's words, the God-man, speaking to his disciples about how to become great, They had it all wrong, upside down, inside out, and so do we. And uh, Lord, we want to be great for you. We want you to use our lives to count for something, to hear, well well done, good and faithful servant. So help us, Father, to be listening with the help of the Holy Spirit to not only hear, but put these truths that you reveal in the next hour into practice so that we can walk the path of greatness. In Christ's name, amen. If I ask you what the ugliest sin in the whole wide world would be, well, I'll give you a second to think about it since there's such a long list from which to choose. And since all sin is uh, nasty, my vote for the ugliest sin on the planet, and maybe even God's vote too, would be pride, the sin of pride. Certainly we know how God feels about pride because it (laughs) uh, uh, comes in first place in a list of seven things that God hates in Proverbs chapter 6. And we certainly know that the sin of pride has wreaked havoc in the world and in our own lives. And it's certainly the source of many downfalls because the paraphrased version of uh, the well-known proverb says, pride comes before the... Yeah, not before the blessing. Amen. (laughs) So in addition to all its monstrous and uh, lethal qualities, pride is just plain ugly. And, and, and boy, is it ever ugly to see it on somebody and on ourselves. You know, um, you know, when people are blatantly boasting about how great they are or showboating how much money they make or their possessions or they boast about how nobody else can do the things that they can do and all of that, it's just sort of appalling, especially if you have an ounce of the Holy Spirit on board. You remember the legendary boxer, and I have to mention his name, you know, running around saying, oh, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, <laughs> singing songs about himself. He wrote a book called The Greatest, My Own Story, <laughs> with a big picture of him on, on the front, you know. Now, even if it was a joke, you know, Christians are like, really? Come on. Um, a pastor, a friend of mine, had a dispute with a member in the church and you know it happens and the member didn't like the pastor's uh, take on this particular uh, problem and he said to the pastor "Uh, maybe you don't realize who I am and how much money I give and uh, my pastor friend quipped uh, well unfortunately I do know how much money you give since you make that a public uh, a statement so often you know and uh, so that's that's all caps ugly I think don't you maybe you don't realize who I am and how much money I give yikes that's a perfect quote there yikes well that's as ugly as sin because <laughs> guess what That's what it is. So this morning, we're going to catch a glimpse of ugly. But maybe you think it's the Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees put the P in pride for sure. But this time, the pride and the ugly and the self-absorbed nature 
is going to be seen in the good guys in the story. Take a look at what I'm talking about. Verses 33 and following. They came to hometown, home base, Capernaum. When he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept real quiet. (laughs) Because on the way, they had argued about who was greatest. Was it the first and won't be the last? Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first... He must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me doesn't just welcome me, but welcomes God, the one who sent me. God the Son, speaking of God the Father there. And so this is going to be our text for our reflection uh, this morning. Yes, so ugly, ugly incident, which serves us because we get to learn through somebody else's mistakes, which is always better than having to learn through your own. Amen? Amen. I, I, I would always prefer to, le- to learn vicariously through uh, the mistakes of others. And so... We catch the disciples with egg on their faces, and and yet, this is a beautiful passage. It's comforting. It's well-known. It's well-loved. It's concise, but it's not easily implemented by anyone in this room. If you want to be great in God's eyes, you have to be really good and great at serving everyone else. Now, conversely... As we get started here, just the major premise of what Jesus is saying, if you reverse it, if you're not good at serving others, if you're always about yourself, if you're not good at showing deference and humble submission and be respectful to others, considering others better than yourselves, as Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 says, if you're not good at that, then you're not good at being Christian and you're far off from being anything God would consider great. So how many of you want to be great in God's sight? I mean, I'd settle for good, but I I mean, most of us are like, I'm just hoping to be there, you you, you know, and, uh, but the disciples have aspirations and Jesus says, you're going to use those aspirations wisely. Let me tell you how to do it. And so, I think you're looking at the most important passage except for salvation. I think this is the key because it tells you this is how to please God. This is how to be effective. This is how your life will count. This is what will get you the applause of God and angels. This is what will distinguish you in the life to come. And there will be distinctions between us. And this is the criteria the judge of the earth will use to evaluate whether or not you're good, kind of good, mostly good, (laughs) or stellar. This is how he's going to judge. So if you want to be great, you better know the standards by which greatness is measured. Amen? Amen. So here in one simple sentence, then, <laughs> he is going to uh, say, make your life about everybody else. And what that means and what that looks like and how we might do it is the subject um, before us this morning. Our passage unfolds really nicely in three ways. Very concise. Don't mistake concise for easy to implement. But first we have the argument of the disciples, then we have the instruction of the Lord, and then we have the example of a child. So let's dive into the middle of some ugly, all right? So let's isolate those first verses and take a look at the argument of the disciples, just nasty. So Jesus is going to identify a problem a problem that if he doesn't fix will render the disciples pretty much ineffective, pretty much useless from God's point of view. God 
can't not and will not use a self-absorbed person to do his work. He can't do it. So if you're self-absorbed, to the degree you're self-absorbed is to the degree that you are useless to God and wasting his time and everybody else's. Already the toes are being stepped on, and we haven't even started. <laughs> Amen. I mean, I told somebody I'm going to step on a lot of toes because I stepped on my own for three days through this study, right? Not only did I step on them, but I amputated a couple of them. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. This passage... Oh, this passage like smelling salts to the soul. Like, do I even get what being a Christian's about? Did I have it wrong for, I mean, I went to seminary for 10 years. 10 years, 10 full years I spent studying this. And I'm wowed by this passage. It's taken me apart again. Like, what? Why can't I do this? Oh, man. Well, let's keep talking about it anyway here. So Jesus asked the question. He, he, he compares himself to a physician who has come to heal the sick. Therefore, we call him the great physician. So the great physician has, has taken his finger and put it on a problem. It says, I detempt a mass, a cancerous mass within you. What? Let me ask you a question, a question that the Son of God knows the answer to, but he uses questions to draw out the issue. And so he says, what's going on with that conversation? And so let's talk about perhaps the cause of the argument. It was a long walk from Caesarea Philippi and Mount Hermon. They're coming back down to home base Baby Peter's house, where Peter and Andrew lived, it seems to fit the bill. Uh, Capernaum is about a 30-mile walk, so it's a decent walk from where they were with the Mount of Transfiguration, where they had just seen, wow, the matchless scene of God's glory, three of them. Now start to build a case for what could be the starter dough for a conversation about who's great and who's not, and I'm better than you, and I'm more important, and who, who, who made you the boss of all of us? Well, three of them got to go up the hill, and nine of them got to wait at the bottom. Not only that, the nine were publicly humiliated in weakness of something they could not do. They couldn't help a guy with a demonized boy. Something God gave, something the Lord, Jesus, gave them the ability to do that they had success before. And the guys, the three that came down from the mountain are watching this terrible belly flop publicly of their nine associates which is going to become fuel for fodder for, uh, for, for kind of jabs here and jabs there and to build a case of who's better, who's more spiritual, who does Jesus like the best. All of that is, is happening in front of us. And so perhaps to the delight of the Pharisees, the nine failed. Jesus said, you guys are not being prayerful enough to have cast out that demon to the nine. And so, and, and which the religious leaders loved to hear. And so did the, the, the three boys, maybe, the three men. Because there's something about our own insecurity that when associates or somebody nearby has a total wipeout, it, it kind of makes us look a little bit better. And there is a part of the twisted human nature, sinful as it is, that the sort of takes delight and just kind of stores this information up to be used at an opportune time. And so you know if the conversation, and then there's one more thing that kind of lit the fire. Jesus just said, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. And then I'm going to be executed. Well, they didn't catch the executed part. They wanted to talk about which one of them is going to betray. Now, that it's not, certainly not going to be me. So they let Jesus take the lead so that they can talk and release some of the steam and be kind of guys and, and banter back and forth. And so they think Jesus can't hear them, but <laughs> Jesus can hear them. 
And so they want to make the case why it's certainly not me. One of us is going to betray him. Well, it's not one of us. We were up, you know, on the mountaintop. It'd have to be one of you guys who can't even cast out a simple demon, you know, and all of that. And so that's what's going on here. Jealousy, envy, insecurity, pride, selfish ambition, which is the root of all of our problems in this room and why we can't be great in God's sight because it's all about us. And so they're jockeying for position here. Oh, that's the cause, possible cause of the argument. Now let's talk about the content of the argument. And, and you know, you permit me some imagination here, and here's how I would imagine. They let the distance happen so they can kind of vent their carnal frustrations at one another. Uh, maybe Peter got hangry, you know, uh, that's kind of their... They're all kind of hangry, and, uh, you know, so somebody probably said, why do you guys always get the fun stuff to do? Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, you know, right? They always do. They go in and see somebody resurrected, a little girl. It was Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John. You don't think? These are human beings. They're ordinary fishermen. They're ordinary guys. You don't think one of them was going, Peter, James, and John? So here's how it goes. Peter says, uh, way to go, guys, making us all look bad down there. You know, what were you doing the whole week, goofing off? Jesus said, had you been spending some time in prayer, none of that would have happened. And Andrew, Peter's brother, says, uh, uh, you're not the boss of me, (laughs) nor of anybody else here. Who's the one who sank on the lake? You almost Drowned, Peter. We were there. We saw it. Oh, Lord, save me. Save me. <laughs> and Peter, Peter says, at least I got out of the boat. All right? I got out of the boat. And then, uh, you know, and then Andrew says, and by the way, guess who brought you to Jesus in the first place? Who's more important? Who's greater, the one who finds the person or the one who's found? (laughs) Peter, why don't you just read John chapter 1 and verse 41, and you'll find out it was me responsible. You owe me your life. You wouldn't even be here. You wouldn't be climbing any mountain if I didn't come and get you. Well... Then John and James pick up because they're part of the inner three, which is Jesus' whole point. There's no such thing as an inner three. Peter, uh, John and James say, uh, hello, we're in the inner circle, okay? And you know how we know we're in the inner circle? Uh, because he gave just the three of us nicknames. Did he nickname any of you? You know why? Because you're the outer nine. We're the inner three. Okay, so Peter says... He named me the rock, John is saying, he named Peter the rock, and he named us sons of thunder. What did he name you guys? Nothing. (laughs) And so Matthew chimes in, hey, listen, has the Lord asked any of you to keep a record of all of this? Because he trusts me to write down all of these things that are happening. And this very conversation's going in chapter 18 of my book. <laughs> What's more important than that? That makes me pretty important. And Nathaniel says, I guess you all forget the moment Jesus saw me come. And Nathaniel says, you think you're all that? What did he say to me? Did he say this to you guys? He said, whoa, check this guy out. Here's a true blue Jew. Here's a real Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Did he say that about you? Huh, Philip? Huh? Huh? Huh, John? Peter, James, John, and Mr. Inner Circle? What's the most important thing in life is character. And Jesus called me out, distinguished me, said, there's nobody that has more integrity than that man. Top that. And then Judas clears his throat and says, I'll top that. Why don't you have the money back? Mr. Integrity? He might have said that, but what his heart meant was, 
The true one I can truly trust is the one I can trust with the money, and he gave it to me. The guy who's got the money, he's the one who's greatest. And so just then they arrive at the house, thank goodness, because I ran out of illustrations. (laughs) (laughs) Timely (laughs) arrival there. And so they go into the house, you know, And by the way, trust me, it was worse than that. We'll say, how can you talk about the disciples like that? Oh, I'm sure they really said, Peter said, I pray thee all, with uh, with all gentleness of heart, heareth my words. Uh, And then the disciples, the others said, you know, I I think if the Lord bestoweth more grace upon me than thee. I don't think it went that way. <laughs> All right, these are regular guys, and uh, they spoke in regular ways and had regular fallen emotions. So continuing on, they come into the house. Jesus gets their attention. Oh, there's a long, terribly awkward, soul-searching pause. And, and notice, not what you guys talking about. <laughs> what were you guys arguing about? How did he even know we were arguing? He was miles up the road because the Lord knows and judges the secrets of our hearts. He knows a word before it's on our tongue to speak. So he's pretty good at knowing. He wants to know what were you guys arguing about. And by the way, in the Greek, he keeps on asking. And in the Greek, they keep on being quiet. Right, So it's a long, drawn-out, terribly awkward ordeal. And why aren't they ask, answering, I should say, they're ashamed. And well, they should be ashamed. And well, should we be ashamed when we act like that? So full of ourselves, Jesus has just said, I'm going to be tortured. And they're so self-absorbed, they can't even reach out to the Lord. All they can see is which one of us is great. On the heels, every time there's an argument, coincidentally, it's after Jesus talks about the cross, the cross, the cross, and his own suffering. And that's just to kind of backdrop the ugliness of being self-absorbed is your inability to care or to hear, or to sense anybody else's pain in the room, including God's heart. Because all you care about is yourself and how others see you. That's awful. And it's in all of us. We're all infected with it, including me. But there's no way to fix a problem unless you identify it. And own it and say, I have that problem. Not to be sitting here thinking I'm not that bad. I do it all the time. And I'm mostly good and I'm mostly other-centered. You're never going to grow. You have to say, whoa, yeah, ugly. And that's me and I love that. Or why else would you do it if you didn't love it and it didn't serve you? We do what we want to do. Newsflash. I know that was profound. Okay, so... (laughs) So he keeps on asking, and they keep on being quiet, and that's too bad, because the one who would have answered would have been the greatest in the room. The one who would have admitted defeat would have been exalted to the highest place. The one who would have taken the low road and done what would make for peace would have led the way to something God said, now that, sir, is great. Philip would have said, I spoke foolishly out of pride. I got my feelings hurt. You know, I didn't get invited to the top of the hill. They came down. You're glowing. I'm like, what happened up there? And Peter's all, you know, we, we can't tell you, which Jesus told them. We can't tell you, can't tell you, bro. And I got my feelings hurt, and I said things I shouldn't have said, and I I insulted the guys, you know, and then that led to the others, and I kind of led the way, and it was a domino effect, and I'm just, I'm sick with tears and cracked voice. God, Lord, I just ask for you to forgive me, fellas. Listen, I said terrible things. Let it go in in one ear and out the other. I did not mean it. I was blowing off steam. I'm sorry. 
you would have read, now there you go. That is great. And husband and wife, listen to me. You who lock horns over the stupidest things possible that all come down to having your way and being right and all about king you. You ought to repeat yourself. Dear Lord in heaven, you know, the one who falls on the sword for the sake of peace and the good of everybody else appears to be the loser, but in God's eyes, you're the winner. The person who lets the other one win over trivial nonsense things. I'm not talking about moral issues or truth. I'm talking about the nonsense, which is 95% of what gets us embroiled in the first place. Nonsense stuff over parking spaces, over what you thought you heard over what you're going to wear tonight, over somebody, forgot something, forgot flowers, forgot the day. Well, let's ruin three weeks now because we can't get over ourselves. A servant of everybody else, you don't have a problem with that because a servant of everybody else doesn't think of themselves as having any rights because everybody else is there for that person to serve. And the, because so few people can do that is what makes one great. is because the rest of the world is entangled in their own self-absorbed problems and the few who are listening and live a crucified life and can consider themselves the servant of everybody else, they're the great ones. And they will be distinguished as great on that great day, but it doesn't come without a cost. And so, lose. Lose the argument. Why do I have to be the first one? Say, you lost already, again. <laughs> Why do I always have to be the one? Can you imagine Jesus saying, Why do I always have to die for people's sins? I gotta. What? <laughs> Wash people's feet. I'm the one. How about me? Jesus could say. Lose and win. Win? I had the last word. You're the loser. You're the loser in God's sight. You walk away thinking, I told him. You lost. Don't expect a reward. When you see Jesus, you got your reward right there. I think it's time to move on. Verse 35. <laughs> I know you thought, well, there's only six verses. They're going to be short today. Not. <laughs> Verse 35. Sitting down means he took the position of the rabbi. It's time for a sermon. And we don't get the details because the details are everywhere else in the Gospels, but Mark is going to just let you know. It was sermon time. (laughs) If anyone, listen guys, if anyone wants to be first, he must be very last and servant of all. Leave that up there to marinate in our sin-sick, self-absorbed souls. (laughs) So in, (laughs) I said our. (laughs) Our. Thank you, (laughs) Willie. In one short sentence, the Lord has turned their whole world of values and value system and ours on its head. Now, here's what first intrigued me. Jesus doesn't do away with the concept of striving to be great. Did you notice that? This has always intrigued me. He doesn't say, oh, come on. There's no competing in the kingdom of God. Don't think about trying to distinguish yourself with excellence. He doesn't discourage them. In fact, the New Testament says, run to win. Run to win. Get the reward. Distinguish yourself. Because there'll be some ruling ten cities, some ruling five cities, some ruling two cities, and some just happy to be there with no responsibilities because they were not faithful in this life. So... He says, listen, I'm not disparaging the idea of excelling 
to greatness. I'm just going to tell you how to do it from heaven's point of view. Because if you excel the way to greatness the way the world thinks of greatness, you'll lose everything. But let me tell you what it means to be great. So important here <laughs> that it's frequent teaching uh, in, the, in the New Testament. And so here's the problem. The struggle, <laughs> the struggle is with us. It's opposite to our nature and opposite in the world. Here's what the Bible, what he teaches in another parallel passage. The kings and the people of this world are power hungry. It's a paraphrase. They love positions of power when people run around serving them. And we look at them as, wow, he's great. He's got all these people serving him at his beck and call. We consider that great. Well, not necessarily so. There's nothing wrong if God puts you in a position like that. It's the heart we're talking about. So Jesus is saying, instead of working your way to the top, work your way to the top by working your way to the bottom. And he goes on to say, it's not that positions of authority are bad. It's the heart that uses authority to further self-interest instead of using authority to serve the best interest of others. And so what does he mean? He says, if you want to be first, if you want to win first prize, if you want to be distinguished in, in heaven, honored by God, esteemed by God, awarded first prize, if we can even talk like this for being the best Christian around. It's kind of odd to say that. But if you want to be, they say, we, we, we want to be the best Christian. Okay, he says, I'll tell you how to do that. Because there will be. There will be. The best, the greatest, and as I've been alluding to. So, um, that's what it means. So here's what he says. You've got to be the last. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, the award will go to the one who consistently, genuinely, cheerfully, willingly, humbly defers to others. Not for the weekend. Not on your anniversary only. Not on birthday special occasions or on Sunday morning. A lifestyle 24-7 of it's the other person. How do I defer? Without doing anything immoral or compromising theologically or anything like that. I like what one person said. It doesn't mean that we stand down in the face of falsehood, immorality, or that we never assert ourselves in matters of importance. It's that we go about our lives with a selfless, Humility that is always thinking of the betterment of the other, even when we take charge of a situation. So I've got a list here of, of what this could look like of being last. Well, it's yielded your life as a servant of rights. You know, others, yeah, you allow other people to receive praise. You're happy to make someone else shine without receiving the credit. That's hard. When you did the work and someone else gets the credit, you're okay with that. Because guess what? Everyone in the room is more important than you. Philippians 2.3. In your mind. You do the job no one else wants to do. There's no job beneath you. Because guess what? You're the world's slave. Slave of all, all's a big word, all would include the entire earth. So you consider yourself, I'm just here to serve who? The world. Who in the world? Everyone. You clean up the messes. You don't always need to be right. You overlook offenses. This is being last. You cut people slack. You give people the benefit of the doubt. You lavish mercy. You deflect attention and praise to others. You're a better listener. You never dominate the, the conversation. Why would you dominate? You're the least in the room. Why do you have to have your way? 
if you're at the bottom. Doesn't insist on having its own way. Doesn't need to be right having the last word. Why do you have to have the last word if you're everybody's servant? You want them to have the last word. Well, what I'm telling you to do is why only a few people will be considered great is because it's nearly, well, it is. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And this is why Jesus says, apart from, you, you can do, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do this in yourself. Try it. You have been trying it. And somehow it always comes back to you. Your feelings, your opinions, your attitudes, what you're not getting. <laughs> I have never, and I've said this before, never had a marriage in, counsel, in crisis in counseling that the two of them come in and I say, okay, what's up? And one of them says, well, we're just trying to outserve each other and we just can't do it. I, I mean, I'll, I wake up and just think, what does Jim need? And I just make a list and I'm just going to light, light him up like a Christmas tree the whole day because I know what he likes, I know what he doesn't like, and I'm going to make this the best day of Jim's life ever. And then the husband, Jim, says, well, you know, I'm... I'm Maria, I, I, I just, I wake up with a love for her. I want everything to go well for her. I know what she likes. I know what she doesn't like. I know what drives her crazy. I'm certainly not going to do that. I know what her favorite X, Y, and Z is. And so I want her to be all that God wants her to be. So I woke up with that attitude. And here we are. We're having so much trouble. <laughs> no, here's what I hear. Here's what I hear. Well, he always, she never, my needs, my needs, my needs, my needs, my needs, mine, 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 like the seagulls in Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. That's how we're born. We're not born into this world with share, you, you know, I, look, I got a picture of this, you know. This is how we're born. Mine. All right? There's a way, it's naturally ingrained in us. Thank you for that. That's what we've got troubles with. And so we've got to learn how to be other-centered. That's the answer. It's a struggle, isn't it, husband? Isn't it, wife? To disappear. Disappear. And make it all about her. And she'll make it all about him. But what if the other one doesn't do that? Oh, that's what it says. You have a clause in there. It says, but if the conditions don't suit your fancy, then, you know, all bets are off. Do whatever you want. You have to be a servant of all, all the time, no matter what. If they're nailing you to the cross and it's God's plan, he says, forgive them. They don't understand. I'm serving them right now. You serve when it feels good. You serve when it doesn't. It serves when you serve when you deserve it, when they deserve it, and when they don't. That's really the deal. Let's move on to the last point here. He took a little child and he held him. He gave him a big hug there and he grabbed him up and he says, okay, let me give you an example. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me doesn't just stop there, but you're welcoming God the Father as well. Now, He's giving an application. We've got the idea of what he means about being low and everybody's servant, considering the needs of others before ourselves, considering others more significant. We understand that. And now he needs to show you to whom the service is to be rendered if you're going to be great. This is so misunderstood because Jesus uses children a lot. 
for different reasons. So here, it has nothing to do with the quality of childlikeness. Zero. He's not asking you to imitate. He's using them as an example to typify who we need to serve, how we need to serve, the things we've been talking about with the right attitude. What is that? And so in this case, uh, he's saying, uh, we're asking, what, is it, what does welcoming a little kid have to do with being everyone's servant? What is it here that is central to the duty of Christi- Christians and love and Christian ministry? Here's the answer. Good servants serve. We get this. We serve those who are well off. We like that, by the way. Everybody's a friend of a rich guy who likes to give gifts. All right? And there's nothing wrong with serving somebody who has it all together. It's just a lot more fun. All right? Uh, Attractive personalities. There's no problem with that. You're supposed to serve attractive people right? Because they're all, right? Fun people, those who reciprocate, those who return the favor, you're supposed to serve them. There's nothing wrong. He's not saying don't serve them at the expense of others. Here's what he's saying. But you all are asking me how to be great. Oh, well, everybody can say, anybody will serve somebody who gets something back. But how about this child? Well, what about a child? 100% needy, can't return the favor. Time and effort and sacrifice goes into caring for that insignificant person. The quality here is 2,000 years ago, first century. Insignificance, not a whole person. That's the understanding that the kid is a nobody. But the person who will serve an insignificant nobody who just requires time and time and time, who can irritate you to no end, who doesn't have the ability to get it together on their own, but you are welcoming the word means to receive, to care for. That you allow Jesus to send in your path people who are needy, unlovely, who, 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 who take your time, who don't always say thank you, who don't always use the word please, and who want to say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? He says, you want to be great? Then welcome the whosoevers with whatsoever issues they have. That's the meaning of this. This is what distinguishes a sermon who says, you know, for Thanksgiving, we had all of our friends over. And then the next day, we just did this open thing where we invited people who most people probably haven't invited. You know, I've got a scripture about that. I think it's Luke 14. Then Jesus said to his host, hey, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't just invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, guess what? They may invite you back and you'll be repaid. You'll get your reward in this life because, you know, you scratch their back, they scratch yours, and it was fun and everything. Nothing wrong with that, Jesus says. That's the stuff of life. It makes life happy. But if you want to exceed if you want to distinguish yourself, if you want the extra jewel in the crown that's going to be lacking in another guy's crown, and we'll be good with that, then I want you to invite people that are a lot of trouble, that you've got to spend a little extra to get them in the house because you've got to build a ramp maybe. So he's not just talking about a, a disabled ministry here. He's talking about people who are socially disabled, the disenfranchised. Why not go to them and say, hey, you got any plans? Jesus says, oh, when you see me, we're going to talk about that invitation. And then I'm going to give you something tangible for that Thursday afternoon that you took somebody out and blessed them 
And they were a lot of work. They were a lot of trouble. And a lot of people would be kind of repulsed is a strong word, but not drawn to them. But you were because you're striving for greatness. And by the way, the feelings will follow. The feelings will follow. He's just saying a novel idea. You ask a great, listen, Christians, it's so funny. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, what kind of reward do you expect when you love those who love you? Sermon on the Mount, same idea. He says, sinners do that. Sinners invite people who are attractive and and have it together and are funny and will be the life of the party. Who doesn't want to invite them and bless them and minister to them? He's saying, well, what about you? Why don't you cook a dinner for someone you hate or who hates you? If your enemy's hungry, why don't you feed him? You get slapped upside. That's That's a idiom for an insult. Turn him the other cheek. Go the extra mile. If a Roman soldier hit you, conscripted you, all they had to do is hit you on the shoulder to carry a sack for them. And that's where they'd ask you to go. Roman law said you had to go one mile if they tap you. So Jesus said, by the way, if you get tapped, say, sir, can I go an extra mile? You will blow their minds and you'll be a testimony of the gospel and then you get the reward for doing what's above and beyond human nature now you've moved into the the arena of supernatural and god almighty is at work and he says in the resurrection when i see you i've got something for you what is that I want to know, what do you mean you've got something for me? In heaven, you've got something for me for for going an extra mile in one little day, in one little moment when I decided, hey, I'm going to go that extra mile, and now you're going to hand me something in heaven. What What does that look like? It's going to be nice. (laughs) And now your thought is going to be, had I known (laughs) that I could have gotten a whole bunch of that kind of stuff, I would have been doing stuff like this every day. And that's why not everybody will be great. Because nobody keeps this in mind. And who's reading their Bible? They're spending more time on video video games and the latest series and sports and all of that, which is fine. Except if it comes at the expense of this, then this isn't on your heart. And then in that day, you weren't prepared This is what he means by the little kid in the midst. And then he gives a motivation, and I love it. He says, and by the way, this sound hard to you? Well, yeah, Lord, who wants to invite the the guy, the troublemaker at work, and nobody likes him, and he, he has a lot of chips on his shoulder. Who wants to invite him? Well, if you do invite him in my name, you've invited me. Oh, here's the part. He just anticipates their raw kind of aversion to doing what doesn't come natural and hang out with people who are unattractive and I don't really like, but who need you, who need Christ. He says, just just remember, it's me behind the face. It's God the Father behind the face. If you can make the connection that I'm taking it personally, and when I see you, I'm going to say thank you for inviting me to your house. Thank you for visiting me in prison. Thank you for feeding me when I was hungry. Thank you for giving me a drink of water when I was thirsty. Thank you for clothing me when I didn't have any clothes. Matthew chapter 25. He says, when you did it to the least of these, you know what? You did it to me. Because guess what? I was with that believer in the jail cell because that believer belongs to me. I was with him and we were lonely and guess what happened? You popped up and you came in and visited us because guess what? I was with him and he with me and I took it personally because guess what? I was in the cell too. So he's hungry with the hungry. He's lonely with the lonely if they know him. I got this really good. We got to stop for communion. 
I got this really good when I was sick with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma 15 years ago, and I was separated from my family. And for a few months, long months, the church, all our dearest friends, they moved in on my 10, 12, and 14-year-old. That's how old they were. And, and, and really, when I talk about it, it's not a real tragic time for them because the church came in and, and, and took them hunting, took them camping, took them to uh, Disneyland, uh, uh, nights out, parties. Somebody brought over go-karts. Uh, they distracted them. And when Barb would come to my room, the kids were not allowed to see me in isolation there at UCSF. She'd say, oh, John came, took Zach hunting. I was like, oh, John, John, John did that to me. And when they brought groceries for Barb and the kids, because I was stuck up trying to die in one cancer hall, those groceries were for me. <laughs> that Disneyland trip was for me. Now I get what he means. He says, when you do it from one of my kids, <laughs> I can't wait to get a hold of you to say thank you and wait till you see the way God can think. Let's pray. Well, Father God, nothing is going to help us to change our hearts than the work you've done for us on the cross. Your blood shed for our wickedness, this just, it gets our attention and opens us to change. Work in our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.